Welcome to the Leaf Report. This is Clark here. Hello, everybody. All right, James, we are doing a live in California edition of the podcast. This is exciting. It's sunny. It's nice. Uh, for Leaf fans, things are going well, obviously. 11 wins in 13 games. How are you doing? I, I Actually, before you say anything. I want to mention we're going to do like an entire pod bag episode today, which we've never actually done. Yeah, we got like, we would get like a hundred questions on the app over the last day and a half. So it's, it's going to be excellent. Uh, the, the California road trip for as long as I've covered the team has always been talked about as this kind of like gauntlet where it's, I don't know if it's because the, the time change or, or the travel, they often make them do it, it, LA, the Kings and the Ducks are in like the same spot but they often make them go down to san jose in between and often it's back to back two years ago was like chaos remember i think they scored like one two three goals something like that and there was like an angry frustrated press conference after the game in anaheim anyway that's a couple years back um but to your point like it it is like for climate change reasons kind of insane that they make them go Southern California, then take a flight to Northern California and then come back. Anyway, let's, let's dive into the podcast or the pod bag because we have tons of questions. So I'm just going to, we're just going to hammer through as many as we can. Number one, should Joseph Wall play one of the games out West this week? Do you want to take this one? I would use him on the back-to-backs. So there's another, I know there's no back-to-backs on, on, on it, but there's one coming the week after, right? Isn't there one, isn't there like a Minnesota Winnipeg one? Am I right? Mm Mm-hmm. I would just use him on the back-to-backs on it with the way that Campbell's rolling. Unless there's like any kind of fatigue or, or injury concern with Campbell, I would just roll him unless it's a back-to-back. Agreed. Next question. Uh, are the Leafs more likely to add a forward or a defenseman at the trade deadline? I think it's got to be a forward. I mean, I look at their their top six right now, and I think Kerfoot's been fine uh with with Tavares his his five on five numbers are are very good I don't know that that line with Tavares Neander and, and Kerfoot has actually worked the numbers would suggest not but clearly James like they need a top line winger like the, the guys they have just aren't going to work like Nick Ritchie I've basically written off like as as a top line option Michael Bunting I think can be fine like in in doses like if you need him a game five games I just think they're going to need someone better. The question is, do you need that guy more than you need, let's say, a top four defenseman or like a bottom pair Bogosian type? I, and and we know that they're looking at potentially adding a defenseman and, sub, and subtracting another defenseman, either Hall or Dermott. So, you know, there may still be a shoe to drop there. I, I kind of want to see how, what the D looks like after another 20 or 30 games before I make that call. I think you're right. I think that eventually they're going to say we need another left winger that can play on one of the top two lines and preferably the top line with, with Matthews and Marner. Um, but right now there's a lot in flux. Like we don't know what kind of their cap situation is going to be. We don't know. I wonder if you make a trade like that, if you have to just send someone like Nick Ritchie the other way. And like one of the conditions of making the trade is like, you need to take some salary from us because we're not able to fit anyone in. Uh, last year they 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 went big on on bringing in Nick Foligno and and that did not work out again. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't take a swing at adding another forward here by the deadline. Well, and I guess the the cost, let's say, to include Richie, you just probably have to sweeten it depending on what you're going to send back. Um, but I think good news for them or optimistic news is the Muzzin Hall pair has kind of gotten back on track. Like that top four last year was really good, even good in the playoffs. 
Um, so if you see, like you're saying, another 10, 15 games of that, maybe you feel better about it. And, you know, they're in an interesting spot with, you know, that extra defenseman. They're trying to rotate a guy in. I, I wonder I wonder what kind of value someone like Dermot would have. He's got obviously another year left on his contract, one and a half. He's not young. Like he'll be 25 in December, but like a team could look at him and say like, we could play him in our top four or try to play him in our top four and maybe see him as an asset. I don't know. I don't get the sense that, that Dermot has a lot of trade value just from talking to a couple other teams about the Leafs shopping those guys around. It, it sounds like other teams like Justin Hall more being a right shot, being a guy that's played more in the top four. Um, so I think that if the Leafs do end up trading Dermot, it's going to be more to kind of give them some cap space and to change the mix. And I don't think anyone should really expect to get much of an asset back for him. But I don't think people should be surprised if that's a deal that, especially with, you know, when Mikheyev and Mrazek get back, cap situation is going to get really tight. They're going to have to look at, or do they have to go down to like a, a, a minimum of, of 20 players or... I mean, we'll see. There might still be, there might be another injury before those guys get back. So we'll see on that. Well, that brings me to the next question. What, if anything, can the Leafs do with Nick Ritchie? Um, I wrote about this this week, so it's kind of top of mind. And you and I have been talking about it. I don't know um, because he hasn't really fit anywhere. Has he been a little unlucky? Sure. Like he's got one five on five point all year. He has yet to score. Um, I don't think he fits in the top six that he's, I mean, the, the fourth line has not performed well when he's been on it. And you're mentioning injuries, like when Ilya Mikheyev gets back, if if I was picking someone to come out of the lineup, it would be him. Um, what about you? Well, yeah, I think you go down the forward group and, you know, Wayne Simmons doesn't have a ton of points, but he's played well in like the nine minutes a game that he's getting. Spezza's played well. I mean, maybe you rest those guys once in a while, but the tough thing too is if 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 you're putting Nick Ritchie in the press box at two and a half million this year and next, it's going to get even harder to move him to another team. Like what team's going to want him if he's got no goals and, and two points in 20 games, Andy's sitting in the press box Andy makes two and a half million Andy has another year next year. Like that's going to be one of the harder contracts to move. I mean, they might get into a situation where you put him on waivers just so that you can get the like 1.15 million. I think that you get from, from bearing a player, like at some point they might just, but the problem is if they do that, then like, how are you ever going to be able to move that? I guess the the response is like, is it better if it's 40 games and he has two goals? I, like, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like things are going to change that much, but obviously there's still time. Like, I think he's been better of late. Um, like there's a difference between being big and actually playing big. And I think he's been better at playing big, uh, but let's move on. This is an interesting one. Curious your thoughts on Josh Hosang uh, and where he might end up. Do you think the Leafs look at slotting him in instead of Richie? TBD, what, what do you think? So to bring Hosang up, they would have to sign him to an NHL contract, and I believe he would have to clear waivers if they sign him to an NHL contract in the middle of the season. So um, I kind of wonder if they give Josh Hosang the full year with the Marlies and see what he does, and then you know if, if they really like where he's at, sign him to an NHL contract after that point, and next year is his chance to make the team. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, he's played really well down there. Obviously, I think that um, it was really smart to bring him in on an AHL deal and kind of try and rebuild his game a little bit and his confidence. And it feels like that's happening. And he's kind of taking on a leadership role with the Marlies. So um, 
We'll see. I, I, the wild card is if they do run into a bunch of injuries and then there, there's more holes in the, like, uh, you know, they got Kyle Clifford there. Like, let's say if they had two more forward injuries, you know, before McKay was back, like Sim, Simeonov would come in, but I'm not really sure who the other, I, mean, I guess Joey Anderson's been spending some time as like the extra guy. Um, maybe he would be, it sounds like he, it seems like he's someone that they, they want to get a look at, but you know, that's when you, if there's a couple injuries up front, that's when you would start thinking maybe more about Josh Hosang. My prediction, though, is he plays the whole year with the Marlies this season. I think that's very reasonable. I guess the only thing I'm thinking is if before you explore a trade, do you want to get a look at, at Josh Hosang in your top six? The thing is, like, he's not playing on your top line. Like, that's, I don't think. Um, so I kind of agree with you. I'd, I'd probably keep him down there, but... I mean, if they've exhausted all their other options in the top six and they want to see what he looks like, I mean, during camp, they played him with Tavares. Um, so I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that. I just wonder if like the way to bring him up to the Leafs is is put him on the fourth line and use him on the power play because he's a really effective power play player. And, you know, th- that fourth line you, with Bunting there and Spezza there, that's got like a little bit of skill, a little bit of ability to create offense. Maybe you can shelter them really heavily with Hosang there and he can do some damage in like eight minutes at even strength and on the second power play unit. Watching some of the highlights and some of the Marley's games that I have seen, you can really see Hosang's eye when he's on the power play, what he can do when he has that extra space. Well, what you could do for that is you could put Hosang on the fourth line, or sorry, you could also, you could put Hosang on your second line, let's say with Tavares and Neander. You can move Kerfoot to the camp line, and then you can move Engvall to the fourth line because the Engvall-Spezza-Simmons combo has actually been really good. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, this was in regards to something I wrote on Monday. Do you think John Tavares could drive a line on his own at this point? This is in regards to, I, I wrote about the possibility that, of putting Neilander with Matthews and Marner and kind of going for a super line and then putting two kind of grinders or worker bees with John Tavares and seeing if that could work. I kind of think it might be able to work a little bit. What do you think? Like if you put, let's say Kerfoot and bunting with Tavares. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think your expectations for what you're going to get from that line have to, if you're, if you're playing Nylander with Matthews and Marner, they're going to have to play tough minutes. I mean, they're going to get tough minutes, especially on the road. Other teams are going to hard match that line into the ground. So, um, the hope I think is, is that a, a Tavares line can do some damage when you're, they're playing against third and fourth lines a little bit more often. And maybe you get them into the offensive zone a little bit more. Can he drive a line? I think Tavares has played pretty well this year. I mean, I, I don't, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast before and I know we've gotten some, some complaints from fans whenever he has a good game. It seems like on Twitter, we get these messages and people said, Oh, but Jonas and James said he was declining due to age and all this. It's almost, it, it, I, I just think it's natural with a player like Tavares, who's not the fastest. His skating has never been his asset. And when you, you get to the wrong side of 30 in the NHL, a lot of guys just lose their production. Not everyone does though. Like so a lot of guys really tail off in their production. I haven't seen a lot of that. Uh, so I haven't seen a lot of that this season, I should say. Um, so I, I think that we're just we're just looking out for the inevitable, but maybe we're ahead of schedule. Like maybe he's going to be a, a really effective player for another two or three years. To be fair, like a lot of that was during the first half last year when he really struggled. And there was a moment in that Amazon doc where Kyle Dubas is talking about that. And one of the things I'm paraphrasing he said was you, you see him struggle and you start to wonder like about the team and the contract and the salary and where that fits in. And then he, I'm pretty sure he did. I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of like, you start to wonder 
about the big picture. So like, that's all we're doing. And like, we'll see he, like, I don't think there's any doubt that he has declined. Like his, his production has declined from the point when he was in his mid twenties, which is what happens, which is part of the risk of signing a guy for that long, for that much money and everything. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, do you think Sheldon Keefe, I'm going to paraphrase this question, but basically the question is, why do you think Sheldon Keefe is changing up the lines as much as he has? I think the reason is because nothing has really worked outside of the camp Kasha Engvall combination. Well, that's a good, I think, gateway to a conversation we should have about what's happening at five on five, where they can't seem to generate any offense. And last I looked, the Leafs had the second lowest shooting percentage at five on five. Only Dallas was lower than them. They've just really struggled to generate a lot there. And even like their very best players, you look at the shooting percentage at even strength for Austin Matthews and how low it is. So the the debate is going to be is is that. Is that bad luck, which shooting percentage often is like really tied to not getting the bounces and things like that? Or is there something more there? Is there is there something they, they could be doing better as a team? Or or per, is it personnel related that... Because the Leafs have been a high shooting percentage team for years and years and years, which makes sense with all the skill that they have. So to see them down in the league basement, a, a, a portion of that has to be bad luck. But... You know, the the part that's, I think, a little bit more interesting is to talk about like the, the portions of that 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 the Leafs can can change as opposed to just waiting for the hockey gods to fix. I think two things on that. I think one is um, they're trying to get some of the Engvalls and Camps and Kashas in better positions to score. So like they're aware of that. The other thing I, I think we have to be careful with is with expected goals is like the shooter matters. That doesn't account for who the shooter is. So like if Wayne Simmons gets a bunch of chances around the net, that's different than William Nylander getting a bunch of chances around the net, at least at this stage, Wayne Simmons career. So to me, that factors in, but obviously when Matthews is shooting three, 4% at five on five, and he's a career 15% shooter, that matters. Uh, let's go to the next question. Which leaf has pleasantly surprised you the most this season? I'll give you a second to think and I'll answer. I'm going to go with Kampf. Like, obviously, he was a bit of an unknown when they signed him uh, for two years. Chicago obviously chose not to qualify him, but he's been like exactly what I think they hoped he would be. I was actually, when I was having breakfast here and uh, I was reading some of our old stories on my phone and I was looking at, remember we did that list of the UFA forwards that the Leafs should target in, in the off season. It was like, there was like 40 some players on that list. And for some reason that came up in my feed or something. And I was like, Oh, I wonder who we picked and how many of the guys that they ended up signing. Did we have on that list? And the thing is that camp wasn't on the list because he ended up not getting qualified to believe by Chicago. So we made that list before, some players didn't get qualifying offers. And Richie also wasn't on the list because he didn't get a qualifying offer. And Kasha too, I think, right? Yeah, so the the three of the forwards that they added were all guys that were added to the UFA pool at kind of the last second. Bunting was on our list. He was pretty high on our list as someone that, that we thought they should add. Um, Kampf is a, is a good answer. I think that he should be in the mix. Uh, Kasha? Is it impressed or surprised? Is that what the... Surprised... Honestly, I would say I would say probably Timothy Logren's been the biggest surprise for me. I think that he's I think that he's been I didn't know I know he's he's playing sheltered third pairing minutes, but I just I wasn't sure what the expectations should be for him, but he he's impressed me. He's just shown a lot more poise than we've seen in in the games that he's gotten in the NHL in the past, and he hasn't always played with a very experienced partner. 
Um, even when he's out there against good players, like I haven't noticed him making a lot of like panic mistakes or, or turning the puck over. And that's a huge development for them. And that's part of what allows them to explore potentially trading a Hall or a Dermot is that they feel like Sandine and Lilgren are ready. And, you know, through 20 games, I, I agree. He's been like a, a check yourself kind of thing for me in terms of like getting impatient, um, just in covering guys, because like you watch those first couple years where he barely played like it was like 12 games but they were getting destroyed when he was out there and it's like is this guy like even an nhl defenseman and you 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 forget sometimes like how young he is like he was in the ahl at 18 maybe it's just going to take him longer than say sandine uh let's move on to another kind of development question has travis dermott's development stalled is he only a third pair defenseman (laughs) He's 24, is that right? And 25 in December, like in a, in a few weeks. Yeah, I would say that. I, I don't know for sure that he's only a third pair defenseman, but I don't think he's going to get an opportunity to be a top four with Toronto. So if he's going to develop into more than that, then it's probably going to happen somewhere else is is what I would say. Um, the, the, the biggest thing that I see is that it doesn't seem like the coaching staff trusts to play him more than, I mean, you just look at his minutes. He's getting fewer minutes than Sandine. Is he getting fewer than Logan? If not, he's not getting fewer. It's really close. Like he's just last year, Dermot only played 13 minutes a game. And this year he's not that much more. And with the opportunity that's there on the blue line, he hasn't really stepped up and, and grabbed more minutes. So I think that his, his time in the organization is, is running out. I think this will be, if he's not traded midseason, I think this will be his last season here. And, you know, Time will tell if if that's a mistake in terms of evaluating on the Leafs' part, if he ends up playing, being a top-four defenseman somewhere else, but I, I just don't think it's going to happen here. What do you think will happen when Ilya Mikheyev comes back as far as the lineup is concerned? I'll, I'll start. I think, I mean, clearly they came into the year wanting to give him a chance to play in on one of their top two lines and probably to play with John Tavares on that second line. He gets hurt, doesn't get that chance. You could slot him there like I think that would make sense and you could move Kerfoot to play with Kampf and Kasha I I more like the idea of playing him on that defensive line but I'm I'm sure you want to kind of make him at least feel like he's got an opportunity to to generate some offense I know he thinks he can generate more offense than he did last year so I, I, I would lean towards him playing with Tavares to start. What do you think? The, the Leafs, no one with the Leafs has said this and no one with, with Mikheyev's camp has talked about it either. But my sense is that he wants a scoring role. He doesn't have any interest in playing on, on a straight checking line like he did at, at times last year. And that that was part of, you sort of saw that where he had the meeting with Dubas and on, on the Amazon series and the the subtext of that was that Mikheyev wasn't happy with the minutes he was getting, with the role he was getting, with not playing on the power play, you know, and I think that part of, there was the, the Elliot Friedman reported there was a trade request and that's all tied into this. And I think that the way, again, no one's really talking a lot about this, but I believe the way that the Leafs kind of smoothed that over is they said, we're going to give you another opportunity in the top six. We're going to see what you can do. I think they're still going to do that. I think they're going to, you know, Kyle Dubas, when he's had these kind of conversations with players in the past, he usually sticks to his word as he did with, you know, remember the Josh Levo situation and he said, we'll trade you if we're not using you. And they, they did that. Um, I think that McCabe's going to come back and play in the top six and it's going to create some shuffling elsewhere. But I, I don't know, like, would you be worried about, I guess at this point, like if you have to waive somebody, you're probably, it's probably like for cap reasons, when McCabe gets back, 
you're probably looking at, uh, I guess it would be Richie Simmons or Engvall. And I, I believe Simmons has a no movement clause, right? So probably not Simmons. So you're looking at Engvall or Richie. And at this point, I would worry about losing Engvall on waivers. I don't know. It, it feels like Richie would probably be the one that goes on waivers if, if they need to for cap reasons. Well, and honestly, at this point, like you're, you're probably okay with you losing him. Like if with that extra year that we were talking about before, um, I don't think anyone's taking, I don't think he's getting claimed on waivers right now. So I don't, I don't think you got to worry about nothing because, but that's, they, they probably, I mean, in hindsight, I think you, I mean, you were, you talked at the time that you didn't really believe in, in Richie as an addition to the team. They should have just come into the year with that cap space and like used it throughout the year to like, like there's been some good players that have been on waivers this year and like they could have just brought in some different guys. It's like though in a, in like a fantasy draft of some kind where you're like, I, I need a goalie and you're just like, I'll just grab whatever goalies out there. And yeah, anyway, um, this is an interesting question and something you and I have discussed at times. I'll just read what they wrote. There is no way Matthew's wrist is back to normal and his shooting percentage is evidence of that. Uh, basically, it goes on. Um, he mentions Mikheyev and his issues after he came back. His surgery was different than Matthew's. Um, but how much do you think that that is impacting Matthew's? Um, obviously, the shooting percentage feels unlucky, has looked at times like crazy unlucky, like he's generated chances. And yet, especially early on, less of late, his shot just didn't feel as potent as it, it did before, which makes total sense. He had the surgery in August. Like, do you think that's, it was just like timing? Yeah, I think missing camp and, and preseason and I think that all, I think that's been a bigger factor than has been talked about. And I think that it's surprised the Leafs and Matthews how long it's taken to, for him to get to, to where he was. And you could really see it in the first, I would say, five to ten games of the season where just his handling the puck and like bobbling it and, and losing it. And it's like, boy, that, that, that's he was so Matthews was so good and so dominant last year, even playing through that wrist injury that I don't know. There's just something that I don't know if it's. If it's timing, I don't know if there's something in the wrist. We haven't really had the chance to get in the dressing room and talk with Matthews like in depth. If it was a normal year and they didn't have all the the, the COVID protocols and everything, I'm sure that we would have had more conversations with with Matthews about this. But I'm sure he would tell you that, you know, it's just been it's kind of a slow build. And there have been some games recently. I'm trying to think of an example. There have been some games and some situations recently where you're, you're seeing it come back and he's looking more like he did last year, but we're 20 games into the season. And there's been a lot of games where he hasn't looked, he hasn't been bad. I mean, he's, he's had a solid season, but he just hasn't looked like the player that takes over the game like he did last year. Well, it's funny. We're in California. Well, not really, but uh, I, I don't know why I always remember this, but Dallas Akins used to say, when you miss camp, it's, brutal trying to come back like you're just racing to catch up everybody is further ahead in terms of their conditioning their touch and everything like that and that's one thing i think i noticed uh, early on with matthews when he came back is his touch with his shot wasn't there like he was missing the net a lot he just wasn't himself and again like when you have surgery in mid-august and the season starts in mid-october like there's just not a lot of time uh next question which new leaf has had the best start to the season do you want to think about that? Or you got one? Well, it kind of fits with the most impressive player. Uh, well, Kampf and Kasha have both been great. You know, I think Kasha was kind of like, can he give you anything? 
I mean, bunting's been good too. I mean, that's the thing with like the Richie, like we can pick at the the Nick Richie thing over and over again, but they made a bet on four forwards and three of them have worked out really well. Yeah. They've both given, I think all three of those guys have given them more than they expected. So I remember writing before the season that the, the tail of their year is going to hinge on really the only thing that's different about this team roster wise is Mrazek as a backup goalie, which has been a non-factor. Uh, no Bogosian and two, the two young D coming in and they've both played well and the four new forwards and like how well those four new forwards who are all wild cards to a certain extent played is a big part of, of whether they can replace uh, the loss of Zach Hyman and, and be as, as good as they were last year. And I think if you hit on three of the four and one of them is, is a washout and not very good, that's okay. The, only, the problem is the one that's a washout has term and, and, and salary on his contract. But, you know, I, I think they have to feel pretty good about, the way that their their pro scouting process identified uh, Kasha, Kampf, and uh, and Bunting um, because they all they all look like really good pieces for them right now. But I think it's interesting that they can hit on let's say three of the four and still really feel the absence of Zach Hyman. Like I was wrong. I I I thought they'd be able to just kind of patch it together and be fine. That's been a humongous loss. Like it. It's, it's just clear with that top line. Like he did so much for that group and like he could move to your second line. He could move to your third line. He kills penalties. He plays power play. He scores around the net. Let me just ask you, if you could do it over again, let's say you're running the Leafs, would you just sign him to a contract similar to the one that he got in Edmonton or like no way that long, the length of the deal is just too much? Well, you know, like I, I was advocating to sign Hyman the whole way along. Like I would have tried to get it done earlier. I would have tried to, I think that they could have, I guess they would have had to go to the, the eight years maybe potentially to get the, I, I think that the, the AAV of the contract that Hyman would have signed in Toronto wouldn't have point five the way that it was in Edmonton. There would have been, yeah. And I, I would have, I would have done, there's, there's been some talk. I don't know where it came from. I haven't looked into this any closer, but there was some talk that or a no trade clause was part of like what, why it didn't get done that. Uh, and that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. I don't know if you've, I just, I've seen some chatter about that. I don't know. I don't know who reported that. Um, that's something I should probably look into a little bit more before I talk about it on the podcast. But it, it, the thing, the, you, you know, you talk about the things that Hyman does on the power play and the penalty kill. Like the power play and the penalty kill are fine this year. Where they miss him is at even strength. Like he, he was such a big piece of, of their dominance at even strength. That said, the Leafs are, are really good, you know, possession and expected goals team at even strength. They need that shooting percentage to turn. So, and and I don't I don't hate the idea of trying to, to find that forward at the trade deadline to, to fill that Hyman hole. I think that that, that makes some sense when you're as tight to the cap as the Leafs are, you're gonna have to use those trade deadline acquisitions to, to fill out whatever hole you have at, you know, late in the season. And to that point, you can probably every year find a top six forward. Like the problem is it, it costs you, like you'll have to pay picks or like, obviously last year, first round pick Taylor Hall went for a couple second rounders. Um, interesting. Um, now that we're a quarter of the way through the season, what's your assessment of Keefe's coaching? I think I think obviously their penalty kill has been greatly improved. The Dean Chenoweth has come in obviously and helped there. Uh, their power play was something that they need to improve. They brought in Spencer Carberry to run the power play. The power play has taken strides. We've talked about five on five. You just mentioned it. Um, I think he's had a pretty good start to the year. What do you think? Obviously, uh, one big thing I should mention is like they had that early storm when it really was able to change some things and get them through it. 
part of the coach's job is to build that staff and identify the right people to bring in. And, you know, the, the two new assistant coaches have done their jobs really well through 20 games. They, they, they seems like, like when they brought in Spencer Carberry and Dean Chanel, those aren't like household names. You know, I mean, I remember Carberry, it's like, that's the guy that's going to come in on the power play, but you know, credit to Sheldon Keefe for realizing what wasn't working last year and where they needed to make changes and identifying good people. Um, with good organizations, you know, Carberry comes from the Hershey Bears, which has long been one of the best organizations in the AHL. And Chanel comes from Carolina, which is, you know, they're the best team in the league right now. Um, those are, those are both wins for him to build the staff and to pivot when what was, what was happening last year wasn't working. Um, the other thing I would say on Keefe is that he's basically, since he became the coach, he's been looking for that shutdown checking line that he could bury in the D zone and, his push for that and his belief in that has has borne out to be um I'm trying to think I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this. It's he's been proven accurate and through the first twenty games that they needed someone like Kampf and that they needed to build uh, a, a purpose built third line that could do that because this looks really, really good. I mean, there's still a lot of the season left to go, but I think that Keefe's intuition and what he was looking for on the roster, it it, it it looks it looks great so far. This is a good follow up question to that. Um, basically, this question is asking about the lack of five on five scoring, poor defensive play at times from Jake Muzz and Justin Hall. Has Jack Campbell been hiding a lot of the holes? And I think that's a that's a really interesting question. I do think their their team game. I mean, you look at some of the wins that they've had during the stretch. Those are pretty like thorough wins. Like that, that win they have uh, against the Islanders. Joseph Wall plays that game, obviously, but they gave up like nothing except for a couple chances early. Some of these games that Campbell has performed, like I'm trying to think who his last shutout was against. Like he did not, I think it was Nashville uh, or maybe it was New York, but like he didn't have to do very much. But overall, like he's got like a 940 save percentage, I think. That's not going to continue. And, and so I think there has been some nights i guess where he's kind of won them games and we don't pick at stuff as much as we might because of it do you think that's fair well think about how much more we'd be talking about the leafs offensive struggles if they were losing games and if even if they had average goaltending in all those games that the jack campbell's played which isn't outrageous to think that that might have happened then you know the conversation around the team would be a lot different right now so you know but but Jack Campbell has been great. He's part of the team. That counts. And, it, you know, it's these kind of percentage-driven things tend to go in waves. So the, the save percentage is really high right now and the shooting percentage is low. There's going to be a time here, probably soon, in the next month or two, where they're not going to be getting as many saves. They're going to be getting more goals. And that's why that's why we look at some of those underlying metrics like, like, like Corsi and the possession and expected goals and all those things because, you know, we're trying not to just chase the percentages and like make conclusions about the team based on that. That's why I say that even though, you know, we can pick at some of the things that aren't working at even strength. And even though we can say, you know, they're missing Zach Hyman, the underlying numbers are still really, really good for this team. And those are positive indicators that they're going to have, they're going to have a strong season and that the success that they've had to date is sustainable, even though Campbell is playing really well. See what, where I would take a little bit of issue with that is I think one thing we 
get into a habit of is like we're, we're looking at sustainability through the regular season. And I think the more interesting question is sustainability for the playoffs. Like what are they building that's going to be sustainable in the playoffs? And that's why a couple of weeks back, like I wrote a story about are, are they going to have enough scoring beyond the big four? I still don't know. And obviously they're five on five issues we've discussed here. I just think in like a small sample of a seven game series for in that example, are they going to be able to find goals beyond Matthews, Neilander, Marner, Tavares? And I really don't know. So like that's that's one mistake I think we make is we're looking at regular season sustainability. And I think the more important question, and Hyman is another good example, is what are you going to have in the playoffs and how is it going to work? So how are we supposed to look at their season and evaluate that and like say these wins are playoff going to translate to the playoffs. I think, you know, looking, a lot of people said last year, including my podcast co-host that the Leafs record was only good because the division was bad. And then, and then you look, you look this year and the Canadian division isn't bad. I mean, like, like Calgary's a, a really good team. I don't know what happened to Calgary last year. Like they should have been a good team. Like I like Markstrom. Tanev's played really well there. They, they have a good team, but for some reason they just had like a brutal year last year. Uh, coaching changes helped them. They look great defensively. Edmonton looks really good this year. Winnipeg looks really good this year. I think that the story of Toronto's season last year is they had a really, really good regular season. They had a really good first four games of the playoffs and then they just choked. The team choked for three games and that's what they have to not do. So like, I don't know that they need to, they need to change necessarily their process. They need to play better in those games when it really, really matters and everything's on the line. And that's what they didn't do. We need to take a break. We'll come back. We'll answer some more questions on the bod bag. All right, James, we're back. More questions. This question um, basically is saying, I mentioned worker bees potentially to play with Tavares, and one guy I did not mention was Andre Kasha. I think that the reason I did not mention Andre Kasha is because I think it's very clear that that Keith really likes him with David Camp, and I think there's good reason for that. I do think it's an interesting question as to whether he should be someone they give a little bit of rope to in terms of playing in the top six and just seeing... If you did, let's say, Engvall, Kampf, Kerfoot and gave Kampf a shot or Kampf, Kasha a shot with either Tavares or, or Matthews, what do you think? I think I think that when you've got Mikheyev back or even if you decide that Richie works okay on that third line, I think that you could experiment with moving Kasha up at times. It, I, he's he's definitely got the skill, the work ethic. Kasha looks more like Hyman than any of the other new guys or anyone else I think they have on the roster. Like he's the yeah. kind of player that could forecheck. He's he's a good passer. He's a good shooter. Like you look at that that goal that he scored against uh, Islanders. I think was the the key, the puck coming out of the corner, and he just he didn't, he he's he's able to pick his spots. He's a real high end player. So I would like to see Kasha get a run on. I would like to see him get a run with with Matthews and Marner. You diminish that third line that much. The only thing is, is that there's some real obvious chemistry there with Kampf and, and Kasha. And Keith pointed it out uh, after one game recently. He said, you know, like they're they're best friends. Like they they played together when they were like 15 years old in the Czech Republic. And it's part of why the Leafs were able to get Kasha to sign. And a part of what motivated him to sign in Toronto was that his best friend Kampf had already signed a two year deal. So, and the interesting thing too is I've been looking at roster projections for the Leafs for the next couple of years. Kasha is going to be an RFA in in the off season, so the Leafs are going to have his rights, and I think that he's going to be willing to, you know, take like a pretty reasonable contract for next season to come back and play again. So, um, anyway, that's a little bit off topic, but yeah, I, th- I would give Kasha a chance on on the top six, um, especially if they continue to struggle to score five on five. 
All right. This is a good question in regards to what we just talked about recently on the podcast, this podcast. For the sake of argument, why would this current roster do better in the playoffs? And one thing as you're talking, I'm thinking about that they did not have last year. They did not have the year before. They really haven't had since the days, sort of, of Nazem Kadri. Now that they have kind of that stopper line, and what happens? More opportunity for Matthews, Tavares to play in the offensive zone. Is there anything else beyond that that comes to mind about why this roster might be better suited for a playoff series? I look at the special teams, and I know that like a lot more of the games that in the playoffs are, well, maybe not that much more, but like you know, even strength becomes such a big factor in the playoffs. But you know, the the Leafs. In, we talked. We've talked about this in the past, but the Leafs penalty kill has really hurt them and their power plays hurt them in the playoffs in the past too i mean you look over the last four or five years of the the matthews marner nylander era i mean they've they've had some real serious penalty killing problems in the playoffs and if they come out of this year with the second or third best penalty kill in the nhl that's something they can hang their hat on and say we've gotten better there i think i'm glad you brought up the penalty kill because we haven't spent a lot of time talking about it it's not sexy to talk about a penalty kill but like you're saying, it has cost them in really key moments. Um, obviously, Dean Stenow's system seems to have made a difference. Like, they really pressure all over the ice. I, I can't believe how little time they end up spending in their own zone defending. And that's just this stretch, like November. I believe for November, they're at 96%. Um, and they haven't, I think they got given up 24 shots in that stretch. Like, they're just not spending a lot of time defending. I think the system has helped. I think David Kampf has helped. He he wins a lot more draws. He's basically their go-to guy to start penalty kills. Um, so that helps. You get quick clears. You kill off 30 seconds. I think Kasha's made a big difference. Like you talk about like how hard he works and, and all that kind of stuff, how he skates. And remember early in the season, I mentioned that he's big. And one of the comments was basically like, this guy's like six foot. 195 like he's really not that big he kind of plays bigger like he feels bigger on the ice so i think he's helped um anyway like i just want to talk about the penalty kill i think it it really uh has made a big difference and obviously we talk a lot about the power play but the penalty kill can be just as critical hey it's jonas so there were actually 10 more minutes to go on this podcast but for some reason we had technical difficulties that have prevented that audio from now existing so, unfortunately, this is the end of our first full podback episode. I think we'll do a lot more of these. They were pretty fun. Apologies on behalf of James and myself. Maybe we'll get to the questions that we missed last time on the next episode of the Leaf Report Pod. Thank you, as always, for listening.